It is um, just after five o'clock. So if you, if you got up at, say, around eight o'clock this morning, I don't know what time you sleep to on a Sunday, that means you've been up for nine hours, give or take. Now, I wonder, um, in those nine hours, how many times have you been lied to? What about this week? How many times have you been lied to this week? Difficult question to answer, isn't it? Well, here's an even harder one. Um, maybe let me ask the, the table at the back with the, the, the little ones there. How many lies have you believed this week? Any ideas? I see Sophia shrugging her shoulders. <laughs> Difficult question to answer, isn't it? Uh, it's actually quite an unfair question, really, isn't it? Because if you've, if you've believed the lie, of course you don't know. Not so? Does that make sense? Next question. What harm can it do to believe a lie? Can you think of lies that don't harm? We, uh, there's, there's an advert that particularly annoys my wife. Uh, it goes flash, ultra, cleans up the impossible, and there's a singing dog. Um, I'm sure some of you know the one. Well, is that a lie? Well, it's, it's factually untrue, isn't it, by definition. If something's impossible to clean, then... Flash Ultra, no matter how many singing dogs there are, can't <laughs> clean it up. Not so. But no real harm. We all know it's just a bit of a joke. It's, it's fine. But what about adverts? I forget the brand name. Whatever brand it is, face cream, put it on, and you'll look 10 years younger. Is that a lie? Well, of course it is. <laughs> and perhaps we're moving a little bit closer to doing some harm, but still no big deal. But what about something more serious? For example, in the 1990s, there was a series of court cases in which it was revealed that the cigarette industry had knowingly misled the public for decades. Uh, they had said that um, cigarettes are not addictive, they are not bad for you, uh, they pose no meaningful risk to pregnant women or their unborn babies, they don't cause cancer. What about those lies? Do those lies harm well, according to the, to the NHS, um, smoking, cigarette cause, cigarette, sorry, smoking-related diseases are responsible for about 120,000 deaths per year in the UK alone. In fact, they say it's the leading cause of preventable death in the world and estimate that more than 7 million, year, 7 million people per year die from smoking-related diseases. That's about 20,000 people a day, and the rate is rising. Well, some lies really do harm. Some lies, if you believe them, will kill you. Well, friends, every one of us in this room have been lied to. Not just today, not just this week. But every day of our lives, and we have in some measure believed the lie. And it is a lie that leads to death. And this is the lie. You don't need to obey God. And who tells this lie? Well, the Apostle John says of this liar in chapter 8, There is no truth in him. When he, that is Satan, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. And he has been telling this lie since the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, excuse me, he lied to Eve, deceiving her with 
questions, twisted questions, designed to make her suspicious of God. God doesn't really love you. If he loved you, he wouldn't restrict you. He wouldn't restrict your freedoms in any way at all. He wouldn't tell you what to do and what not to do. He'd leave you to decide for yourselves what's good and bad. You don't need to obey God. Why on earth would you obey a God like that? Set yourself free. Be the master of your own destiny. Obey God? Nonsense. And Eve believed the lie, and Adam with her. And all mankind was condemned to a state of enmity with God, continually suspicious of God, always defying His rule, We believed the lie and suffered the consequences. And the Apostle Paul says, We were dead in trespasses and sins. We once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We listened to the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies, and we became the sons and daughters of disobedience. That means disobedience is in our nature. It's the way we are. It comes naturally to fallen human beings to disobey. To disobey God's commands, to reject His rule, to even go so far as to deny His right to rule. So when Jesus says in this passage, keep my commands, how does that make you feel? Essentially, He's quite insistent about it. Four times in this passage. Verse 15, which is this one up here. If you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then implied in verse 24, the other way around, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Keep my commands, obey my teaching. Now, if we'll admit it, that just goes against the grain, doesn't it? It rubs up the wrong way against our fallen human nature. that is, at best, suspicious of God. We have believed the lie. God is not to be trusted. God is not good. God is not for you. God is an insecure dictator. You do not need to obey God. Obedience is foolish. Obedience is restrictive. Obedience is enslaving. Obedience is failure and weakness and the death of all my happiness. Now, friend... If that describes anything of what happens in your heart when you hear obey, I hope this message will help. Christian, if you know you're supposed to obey, but it seems impossible, and in any case not very exciting or very inspiring, not much of a thing to aspire to, obedience, at best it's just a duty which we hope we will fulfill with a passing grade then I hope this message will help you. There are four things I want to show you from the text, but before we get to that, I want to share something else with you. Most of you know I come from Cape Town. Uh, A popular sport in Cape Town is paragliding. Um, I've never done it. Um, Many of you know my my professional background is as as a fund manager in the investment world, so my brain works in terms of risk and reward, and I just can't make... Can't make this equation work. In any case, it's popular, as you'll see, uh, you'll see from these pictures. Uh, that is overlooking Camps Bay Beach on the Atlantic coast. Uh, that is towards Table Mountain over Signal Hill. 
this this path you can see coming up the mountain here goes up to the cable car. We have walked this path many times. Uh, it's full of little animals called dassies, which are kind of like guinea pigs on steroids. Um, but most summer's day, most summer's days in Cape Town, you'll see people paragliding. It is it is very popular. Now, I have to say, I get it. For those inclined to this kind of sport, <laughs> I get the attraction. Soaring off into the, the warm blue sky, feeling the, the air rush against your face, the magnificent views of beaches and mountains, and back up this coast, the vast um, grain fields of the, uh, and vineyards. It must be breathtaking. But you have to climb the mountain first. <coughs> now... What I want for you and what the Apostle John wants for you, what your Father in Heaven wants for you, is if I can say to to soar into the warm sky of obedience, to love to obey, to want to obey. And that's where we're going. I want you to love obedience, to delight in obedience, to find joy in obeying. Even, can you imagine it, thrill and excitement in obedience. That's where we're going. But we need to climb the mountain first. So, point one. Obedience is the overflow of love for Jesus. Now, let's think about how love for Jesus works. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And again, in verse... um, I've lost my place. 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Now, notice that obedience is not the same thing as love. Jesus says, if you love me, the result, the overflow, will be obedience. But what does it mean to love Jesus? What is love for Jesus? Well, is it not the the response of our hearts to his beauty, to his majesty, to his greatness, to all his perfections? The delight of our souls in his glory. Love for Jesus is the perfectly right and fitting joy and pleasure of our hearts in his infinite worth. In other words, he is perfectly, absolutely lovely. (coughs) And so, because of who he is, our hearts respond in love. And this means that love for Jesus is pleasure. It is joy, it is happiness, it is gladness, it is delight. It is the deepest satisfaction of our souls to love him who is perfectly lovely. So if if that's what love for Jesus is about, then what about obeying his commands? And in any case, what commands does Jesus have in mind? And how do these things relate, loving and obeying? Well, would it surprise you to know, if if you search the Gospel of John, I could only really find two explicit, call them behavior sort of commands, in the whole Gospel of John. The one is, we we covered this two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was, Jesus' new command to love each other as he has loved us in chapter 13. And the other is a command to Peter towards the end of the gospel, feed my sheep, which we will come to in six weeks' time or whatever it is. But there are plenty of a different kind of command throughout the gospel. Commands like, follow me. Commands like, to the crippled man in, uh, in chapter 5. Be healed. Get up. Commands like, Lazarus, rise from the dead, in chapter 11. 
Believe in God, believe in the light, believe in me, abide in me, abide in my love, receive the Holy Spirit. These are the kinds of commands that are full, uh, sorry, that the gospel is full of these kinds of commands. These are the kinds of commands that the Apostle John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pass on to us. Now, I wonder if you see the relationship, the connection between loving Jesus and obeying his commands. The commands of Jesus in this gospel are overwhelmingly of the nature receive, believe, live, abide. It makes perfect sense then that Jesus would say, if you love me, if you desire me and delight in me and find your joy in me, then you will want to receive me, to believe in me, to live in me, to abide in me. It also then makes perfect sense that Jesus commands, <coughs> excuse me, commands us to love one another as he has loved us. Because if we love him, if we receive him, if we live in him and abide in him, then we will love what he loves. And we will love what he loves like he loves. We will love his church. We will love his people. We will love his father. We will love one another self-sacrificially. I repeat, if we love Jesus, we will love what he loves, like he loves. And that leads to the second main point. Your obedience to his commands is how Jesus shows himself to the world. Now you remember, uh, Jesus is talking about obedience here in the context of explaining to his disciples, those closest to him, that he is about to leave. He's going to go to return to his father. He will come back. He says that briefly here. Um, Verse 19, Before before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. In other words, he's, he's he's going to die. He's going to come back. His disciples will see him briefly, and then he will depart to be with his father in glory. But then Judas asks a question. Verse 22. Not Judas Iscariot. Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Now Jesus' reply, let me read it to you from verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Strange reply, isn't it? It doesn't seem to be answering the question. Judas has asked a straightforward question. Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus essentially repeats what he said. If you love me, you will obey me. His point is, Judas is looking for a Messiah who will show himself to the world in a certain way. Judas wants a Messiah who will show himself in power and in conquest. He wants a Messiah who will raise the armies of Israel and rout the Romans and reestablish the earthly thrones of the great kings, David and Solomon. He wants a Messiah that will build an empire that will be the fear and envy of all the world. But Jesus says, no, I will show myself to the world in the obedience of those who love me. Jesus, my dear brothers and sisters, Jesus now shows himself to the world in your and my obedience to his commands. Do you see that? You follow the logic. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and we, that is my father and I, will come to them and make our home with them. 
And just a little earlier in verse 17, um, Jesus had said, The Spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit, lives with you and will be in you. Friends, if you love Jesus and obey his commands, the triune God lives in you. That means that from the inside out, we are being changed, transformed, conformed to the likeness of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is showing himself to the world in you and in me. To know the infinite love of God, the boundless love of the Father that saved such as you and me, sons and daughters of disobedience, not merely to save us from his wrath soon to come, but to free our souls, to delight as he does in the Son who is worthy. (coughs) Christian, it is so much more than our duty to obey. It is our joy. But specifically because of this, because we delight in Jesus, because we delight in obedience to his commands, this has implications. It means you are no longer in love with the things of the world. The great lie told by the father of lies, every moment of every day since the Garden of Eden has been exposed. And though you will hear it a thousand times in a thousand ways every day, you no longer believe it. And that means obeying Jesus means trouble. Listen again to Jesus' reply to Judas' question. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now note how he, he's described one group of people, those who love him. All of humanity are divided into two groups in this answer. Those who love Jesus, and now anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. In verse 17, he'd said of the Holy Spirit, the world cannot accept him, the spirit of truth. Well, of course not. How can the sons and daughters of disobedience accept and love the spirit of truth? But this means, friends, that you will have trouble in this life. Trouble not just because we live in a fallen world and stuff goes wrong, Trouble not just because of the consequences of our own foolishness sometimes, and not just because of our own disobedience to Jesus' command sometimes, but trouble specifically because of your obedience to Jesus' command sometimes. And Jesus, our compassionate Savior, equips us for the troubles we will face. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. His peace he gives. The same peace Jesus had as he faced trouble in this world, as his devotion to his Father meant that he could not and did not share the loves of the world, the love for power, the love of self, love that harms, things that ultimately lead to death, as his love exposed the false and the lying loves of the world, So he faced constant opposition and hostility and persecution and ultimately a death. And through it all, he was perfectly at peace. Why? 
because nothing the world could do to him could steal from his heart the joy of knowing that his obedience pleased his father. And this peace is given to us. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The Father will send you another advocate. Now, different translations of the Bible uh, translate this word differently. Some say advocate, uh, some say helper, some say comforter or counselor. It's a difficult word to translate and to retain the original sense of. I think maybe something in our current English usage, something like fortify or strengthen might be close to it. But whatever it is, the key is that Jesus says it will be another advocate. He will be another advocate. In other words, he's not the first. Whatever the nuance of, of meaning in that word advocate is, whether it's helper or advocate or comforter or one who fortifies, the point is he will help you as Jesus did. The point is that God himself, just as he came in the person of Jesus to your and my rescue to save us, now comes in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit to sustain, to help, to aid, to advocate, to fortify, to strengthen, to counsel, to comfort. For all the troubles that you and I will face in this world, and you will, as a result of your obedience to Jesus, for all those troubles... God the Holy Spirit lives in you. In fact, verse 16 says, He will be with you forever. Christian, you have been gifted the peace of Jesus, the forever indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, by the way, if the Holy Spirit is another advocate, that means you still have the first advocate, Jesus, the risen Savior, advocating for you right now and forever in the holy court of heaven. And more. Verse 26. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, this was spoken to the original apostles only. You see, they would be reminded. In other words, this promise is specifically to those who actually heard that teaching. But the implication, oh, sorry, it says he will remind them and teach them everything. The Holy Spirit would flesh out for them the implications of Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All the grace and the truth of the good news of Jesus would be brought to their minds and understood and written down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Scriptures, in other words, are entailed in this gift, in this promise that Jesus makes to these first apostles. So we have the peace of God, the peace of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have Jesus, our advocate in heaven, representing us. We have the scriptures. We have all of this for the troubles we will face. So friends, if that is the climb up the mountain. Beautiful as the climb was, it was for a purpose. You'll recall the pictures. It was for the purpose that we would launch out and soar in the bright warm sky. So here comes the, the moment from verse 28. 
I'm going to the Father. Be glad for me, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not, I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is the glorious victory of obedience. Remember what's happening here. Jesus has gathered with his disciples. This is the the final hours before his passion. Night is falling. He knows what is but hours away. The prince of this world is coming, he says. The night darkens and the hour approaches. But it is not the prince's hour. This hour, this hour when the prince of darkness marshals all his might against the beloved son. This hour of betrayal, of injustice, of cruelty, of humiliation, of judgment, of blood, even this hour belongs to the Son. My hour, he said to his mother at the wedding in Cana, my hour has not yet come. And again, when the Pharisees tried to seize him, John reports they weren't able to to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. He has no hold on me, Jesus says. Even beaten and bound, even scourged and nailed to a cross, Satan has no hold on Jesus. But he comes. Read this verse again. He comes so that. Even this hour where darkness thought it had its victory, even this hour where Satan thought he had put the Son of God to death, even this hour where all his enemies thought they had triumphed over him. Jesus owned this hour. My hour has come, he says. So that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Even this was under the sovereign control of Jesus, and this is how he described it. This hour has come, my hour, to show, my perfect obedience to the Father is to show the world that the Father is worthy of obedience. This is the glorious victory of obedience. This is, friends, every time you say yes to Jesus, Every time you bow your heart in obedience to his commands, you share in that victory. You expose the great lie and trample on the head of the great liar by showing the world that the Father is good and that all his ways are loving and kind, that he is to be trusted. You and me, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, you show the world that not just that hour, but this hour right now belongs to Jesus. Friends, love Jesus with all your hearts and let us together love to obey him. 
Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father, what great provision you have made for us in and through your Son. You have saved us. Sons and daughters of disobedience we were. You have saved us by your grace. Your peace you give us. Your Holy Spirit you give us. Your word you give us. One another you give us. Father, would you be at work in our hearts to cause us to delight to obey. You call us to obey you. Not because it makes you any more glorious than you already are, but it is an invitation to us to soar in the sky. It is an invitation to us to participate in your victory, in the victory of your Son. It is our chance to join in showing the world that you are worthy. You are worthy to be trusted. You are worthy to be obeyed. It is our delight and our joy to obey you. Be glorified in and through us, Father, as we conform evermore by your Spirit to the likeness of your Son. Amen.